Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We have invited Angela Thompson-Smith back to the show today. She is a professional remote viewing trainer, teacher, a researcher, a former nurse, and an author of many books, one we will be discussing today called Remote Perceptions, Out-of-Body Experiences, Remote Viewing, and Other Normal Abilities. Now, if you've been listening to It's Rainmaking Time, you know that we have really gone in to do our due diligence about remote viewing. We've interviewed several of the people on the Stargate team, Lynn Buchanan, Paul Smith, and others, and we interviewed Angela many months ago, and it led me to actually have her become my teacher and my staff and associates, and she flew here to Pasadena area. We spent five days with her in session, and I have to tell you, it was the most mind-blowing experience. I've actually invited her on today to discuss remote perceptions and to talk about the actual training from the point of view of having been her student. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Angela Thompson-Smith back to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Hi, Kim. All right. For those people who have not heard about remote viewing, don't have a context for it, I want to talk about what it is first. Lay it out for us again, please. Right. Remote viewing is a trained ability, a mental ability using the mind to access information from a distant location, uh, whether that's across the room in an envelope or across the world, um, using um, something other than the known five senses, uh, which can access objects, events, locations, and people, in sometimes in quite uh, great detail. Now, from my reading and my interviews... And now, having been your student, it is clear that controlled remote viewing as a protocol is very distinct and very different from simple intuition. Describe why. Right. There's something called spontaneous remote viewing, and Ingo Swan, who's talked about as the father of remote viewing, um, says that there is a natural ability that we all have, which is called spontaneous remote viewing, in which we can pick up information, sometimes um, at that moment or in dreams or in uh, meditation. Um, but it's not as complete as something you pick up through a structured protocol like controlled remote viewing. This is going to sound like a testimonial, everybody, but I did take her course. So I'm going to be speaking from having been in her course. I always knew I was very intuitive. I have psychic ability, meaning... On behalf of other people, a lot of times I'll hit the nail on the head about a situation. Usually it's business-oriented or health-oriented. I don't offer intuition services for a living, but it's part of the faculty of what I do. But I never, ever felt that I was psychic in terms of being able to predict or to give incredible detail into things. But I have to tell you, when taking your course, I cannot believe how, through that protocol... I was able to locate, identify, discern, describe what's in an envelope or some type of coordinate or physical thing that's somewhere that I don't even know where it is. I cried during one of my sessions because I got it spot on. It's kind of like the distinction, Angela, between thinking you know something, you have a sense of something, and then having total confirmation that that capacity is real and doable and accessible 
It's totally mind-blowing. That was my experience. Mm-hmm. And I've had many students who have had that same experience. It's that aha moment when they, you know, you're going through a session, and a session can last up to an hour, as you know, and you're, you're battling through it, just gleaning information up from the subconscious, not even knowing if it's right or not, writing it down, saying it, adding it to the, the mix of what you've got on your pages, and then opening up that folder and seeing the, the picture, um, or even the text, because we worked for some, from some text uh, targets only, and uh, seeing that, and that aha moment when you go, wow, I did it. And it's, it really is a, an emotional experience for many students. No matter how much you can describe what remote viewing is, and I understand it really, from Ingo Swan's point of view, should be called Remote Perceptions, which is actually the name of your book. Yes, use all the senses. Exactly. It's an experiential paradigm shifter when you realize the way in which we define what's accessible to us, the whole lid is taken off of that. The whole mindset is opened up and expanded, and there literally is no limit for what you can access. From an experiential place, it is so different when you have access to that. It changes your life because after that, nothing is really hidden. Um, you know that you can remote view anytime, anywhere, anything. Um, there are certain ethical considerations that come in. You don't go and start uh, remote viewing your ex. You know. Right. Um, uh, but uh, it can be used for humanitarian work, for business applications, lots of other work that you can do with it. What do you think about the work of James Van Avery? I read some of his work about future memory. I think that's valid because I've actually uh, had students do that in a, an open-ended course where we do uh, not controlled remote viewing but more... Um, spontaneous remote viewing, and I've had students um, go ahead in time, uh, then look back at a particular point in time that they want to find information about, and I'll give you an example. Um, one student uh, wanted to, to do the exercise, so she cast her mind from where she was in the class at point A to point C, which was a couple of weeks ahead. Um, past the point at point B where she wanted to get the information. So she went to point C and then remembered back to B because B by that time would have already happened. It makes a whole mockery of time. And what she perceived was she perceived herself at point B, which was two weeks from point A where she was in the class. She saw herself in a tropical location with tropical flowers, humid and moist and beautiful, birds singing, and she wrote all this down and said, uh, reported back to the class, well, there's no way. I have no plans to do anything like this or go anywhere like this. But then when she was at, uh, in the intervening two weeks, her daughter had started dating a Hawaiian and invited them all out to Hawaii. <laughs> That's great. She found herself in Hawaii at point B. And it was like, wow, here I am <laughs> And she, she sent me a letter saying what had happened. And that's called future memory. So you're remembering back. Rather than looking forward, you're remembering back to something that's happened in the future. Is anything really happening at the time frame we think it is? I think a lot of it is there, you know, waiting to happen. But we still have some free will. 
Talk about that. I believe in free will. I think that every decision we make, um, you know, whether it's A, B, or C, changes our random walk in the future. So we go, okay, decision A, decision then decision C, decision B. Every single decision we make changes the future. But it seems like we're heading down a certain path that maybe the decisions in the past have headed us in that direction. And there's also the quantum mechanics, uh, which I don't fully understand. I'm not a physicist, but that time events are rolling along like a wave, and in that wave are particles of um, events. And perhaps by choosing a particular or viewing a particular future, we collapse the wave. We make that future more likely to happen. So do we really manifest anything? I think we can. Talk about that. I've proven that for myself. Uh, I've set in motion certain expectations, and I know that we have to do the behaviors, too. We have to put action in and work to go in a certain direction. But there have been things that have happened in my life and people that have come across my path that have been amazing, and only through uh, manifestation. I wonder if it's actually you doing the manifesting or if it's actually happening on its own, if the future is just coming toward you. Could be. Um, Who knows? Uh, There's still some magic in life, and I think we still have to have some things that are unknown and uh, mystical and magical. Talk about your relationship with Ingo Swan, how you met him and what your experience of him is. Right. Ingo's a great guy. He's a bit of a curmudgeon, and he won't mind me saying that. I'm sure he'd agree with me. He lives in Manhattan. Um, He's getting on in the years a bit now. And I met him back in, I think it was 93 or 94. I'd been working for Robert Bigelow. um, And as a research coordinator, he sent me out to Manhattan to do some work with um, one of the UFO guys. And um, at that time, I was writing remote perceptions. And um, I'd got the basic manuscript, and I thought, I'm going to ask Ingo Swan if he'll write the foreword for me. Ingo didn't know me from anybody, you know. Um, But uh, I was at that time, I hadn't married uh, my ex-husband David, but uh, David is the brother of Paul Smith, who Ingo trained. So there were some connections. So I wrote to Ingo and said, you know, I'm coming to Manhattan. I'd like to meet you. And... uh, ask you to write the foreword for my book. So he very grudgingly said, okay, well, let's meet at the diner. And uh, we had uh, lunch, and he was delightful. And he said, absolutely. Um, After we talked for a while, he said, sure, I'll write the foreword for your book. And from then on, we've had a, a wonderful friendship. I know I can go to Manhattan and call him up and go visit, give him a call on the phone, which I need to do, I kind of lose track sometimes. Um, give him a call, see how he's doing. So there's a nice ongoing relationship, and um, he likes to know what's going on in the RV field and uh, who's who and what's happening. Now, there's different kinds of training in remote viewing. Not that the protocol is different, but each practitioner has a different signature of what they imbue it with. What has been your experience? You have learned from Lynn Buchanan and from Paul Smith. Talk about that. Right. Um, Each of the teachers brings with them a particular training style. 
the way they carry out the courses. Paul's is very um, traditional. Um, he tries to follow what he learned from Ingo Swan in the unit and SRI. Um, so he gives essays. He has you take notes during the class. Uh, he trains. It's like boot camp, RV boot camp, because he's, you know, one of the ex-military majors. He still is a major. And um, it's a very intense, very rigorous training, and you learn a lot. Um, Lynn Buchanan has a more laid-back style. He has larger classes, lots of anecdotes, still a very thorough training. He was asked, after Paul had started training, there was some kind of confusion about whether he should use the same terminology as Paul. And um, there's some discussion about how that came about. But Lynn's terminology is a little different. So, you know, you have to adapt to that if you go from one training to another. But with Lynn, um, it's a more colorful, more open, um, lots to say, lots of anecdotes about the history of remote viewing. So having, I feel very lucky, very fortunate having trained with both Paul and Lynn because I think I got training from both angles. So you're kind of carrying a synthesis. Now, there's not that many women in remote viewing as trainers and teachers, let alone practitioners. Why is that? There are very few. Um, originally, it seemed to be a very traditionally male field with all of the trainers coming out of the Stargate unit being male, setting up their own schools. You know, Ed Dames and Paul Smith and Lynn Buchanan and... Um, David Morehouse. David Morehouse. Um, and um, no women at all. Women started to be trained. Um, Ed Dames taught um, Courtney Bra- Dr. Courtney Brown. Courtney Brown trained Prudence Calabrese, and she was in the field for quite some time and then dropped out. Um, we have Laurie Williams now, who is was trained by Lynn, who is a wonderful person. She's going around the East Coast now, up and down the East Coast training and uh, she is a very thorough, very good trainer. I think it's kind of neat that you talk about other people that would seemingly be competition to you in such a nice way. Well, we're <laughs> all in great. the same field. Yeah. So I, I like to be in cooperation rather than competition. I think it's great. Now, you're doing a training in Australia coming up in mid-October. Talk about that. Right, yeah. Um, I was invited out uh, to Australia, actually, a student that I trained here in Boulder City, Nevada, um, said she would love to bring me out to the Gold Coast, Australia, and uh, to train a group of folks out there. And um, so I'm going to be out in Australia all being well. Um, we're planning at the moment two, cl- two classes at the Magic Mountain Resort, Nobby's Mountain on the Gold Coast, from the 10th through the 14th of October, and then another one from the 17th through the 21st. Um, though that will be the standard CRV training, five days, um, and I will, I'll be incorporating a whole tool belt of other methods like the spontaneous remote viewing, ERV, um, extent, which is, again, altered state remote viewing. So what um, we do need to fill up the class um, in order for me to get out there. So uh, we're putting out a call for students. That's awesome. Now, you're doing two five-day courses, and you have room for how many students per training? Well, we have uh, two monitors, including myself, so we can train up to 10 
in each class. Okay, fabulous. How do people get a hold of you to sign up and find out more about the class? They can go to my website, which is mindwiseconsulting.com slash Oz, O-Z. There may be some people in other areas also who want to contact you as well. Is there a way for them to contact you via Skype? Yeah, I'm not always on Skype. Um, better to email me first and set up a, a time to talk over Skype if okay. you want more information. Um, my Skype address actually is mindwise78. Um, they can take a chance and see if I'm on, um, or they can email me at mindwiseconsulting at googlemail.com. I want to talk about a few difficult things in your book, Remote Perceptions. Very difficult because they are the future remote view. Now, I understand that the future is much more difficult to remote view than the past or the immediate present, if there is such a thing as the present. Paul Smith said the present is often the interface between the past and the future. And by the time you recognize you're in the present, you're not in the present anymore. (laughs) And I've been told that the future is much more difficult to remote view. Do you agree with that or do you disagree with that? It's only difficult in that you rarely get feedback until the events have happened. So you're working really blind. Um, with events in the past, of course, you can get actual feedback. Um, stuff that's happening right now, you can get feedback, which is you can somebody can tell you, yes, that's correct or not correct. The future, um, the further out you get, um, the more difficult it is. I've actually done viewing... Um, Eight years, had feedback after eight years and got a lot of the information correct. So the future future viewing um, is more problematic. Um, a lot of the questions about time and space come into play. Um, but I go ahead and do remote viewing of the future anyway and um, then wait and see what happens. Well, if remote viewing is what I understand it to be from having spent five days with you and doing all of these interviews and research on it, it would seem to me that the protocol allows you to plug into the future. But I want to talk about a couple of futures that you have had the courage to put in your book. In 1992, you did a remote viewing about the next 20 years, and you remote viewed the next big quake. Right. In the New York, New Jersey area, the city of Manhattan. And I'm not saying this to try to scare the audience, but it's bold enough to have put in your book. So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about it. Right. This was a project that was given to me by a group in California. And I knew left brain, logically, they were thinking about California. You know, the next, they asked, when will the next big one occur? It was a front-loaded project. Um, I used ERV, which was the more spontaneous type of remote viewing rather than controlled remote viewing. And what I did was set my mind. I set what their expectations were aside and said, okay, let me look and see what the next big one uh, will be that will cause Earth changes. That was what they were specifying. And I started seeing all these people running around. And first of all, I thought it was Chinatown in uh, San Francisco. And I'm going, this doesn't look Western. You know, it doesn't look like San Francisco. And as the viewing proceeded, um, I saw with my horror this was uh, Manhattan. 
and I followed it through. It was a very difficult viewing to do because it was very traumatic. Um, and basically, it was a very large earthquake that happened in Manhattan in the future that basically splits the island in two. And I hope I'm wrong. You know, when I do future viewing and it's a, a negative viewing or something bad happening, I hope I'm wrong. And I don't have any um, investment in being right because I don't feel, you know, that's a good thing to do. But I, and I hope I'm wrong. But that's, I report what I perceive. Have you ever met other people that saw something similar who were remote viewers? Right, after the fact. I haven't uh, met and talked to them, but the taskers, when I sent them all my information, said, oh, this is what Joe McMonagall had viewed and another remote viewer and another psychic. And, um, you know, it matches what they perceived. I've never actually seen their data. Um, and then I found a, a magazine, the, the New York magazine. It wasn't the New Yorker, but New York magazine and there was an article in there saying, not if, but when, um, the next big one in the Big Apple, and lots of information about fault lines and uh, the potential for a big one in the Big Apple. And it happened at night, it's dark. Of course, you've got all the underground rail lines, you've got traffic, you've got water lines, gas lines, um, a lot of utilities that tra traverse uh, Manhattan, um, so, and then, you know, the possibility of, you know, how do you pick up all those people that are um, in that devastation? Because it doesn't just happen right in that center. You know, it affects the whole island and uh, part of the, the shore, the coastline too. So um, it, was, it was pretty traumatic. Now, that was in 1992. For it to be within 20 years, that would be up to 2012. When you do a task like this, what do you do? You put down in the task that you are looking to identify something within the next 20 years, and then you're plugging into that timeline, no, correct? No, it's, it, that's, it's done the op opposite way. Okay. Um, it's an open-ended search. And then after the fact, it's a question of, well, when, can this, when is this going to happen? Okay. That's the question after the fact that the taskers had asked me. And that is very nebulous because um, you, there are ways within different protocols to look at timelines. Right. Um, as we, we did a little bit of in the class. Yeah, that's what I thought was so interesting. Yeah, but I didn't do timelines for that particular viewing. Right. It's just off the top of my head, the gut feeling of when it might be. Do you think that anybody would even be open to preparing? Is there a way to prepare for such a thing? Um, what I put in the book were some things that were going to happen beforehand. For example, there would be um, escapes of gas. Um, there would be aerial lights, um, which are seismic, um, that are precursors to um, earthquakes. So just to be aware of the events that happen before earthquakes, and if those start happening, you know, get to higher ground. And I want to talk about another thing that really upset me. I want to talk about Melvin Pruitt, and I'd like to talk about your RV work of 2030, this mass exodus from the Northern Hemisphere. I think that there are a lot of people that are now receptive that maybe wouldn't have been receptive in 1987 when you remote viewed it. Can you talk about it? 
What I perceived, and this again was um, an individual that gave me the tasking, and um, I had the first look that I took was um, I went to various northern hemisphere cities and found them empty. I'm going, what on earth has been happening here? Um, And then I looked again and I found that um, what I perceived was that the atmosphere around that particular time had dramatically declined. Everybody thought the atmosphere was on the, um, had been improving, but it suddenly deteriorates for some reason. Now we've seen indications of this with the volcano, the Icelandic volcanoes. Um, it could be on a par with something like that in the future, but the atmosphere just suddenly deteriorates and there's an exodus of people from the northern hemispheres down to the Mediterranean regions. And um, that lasts for about 50 years. The atmosphere starts clearing and people start drifting back. Some people don't. They stay, they acclimatize. Uh, you can imagine over 50 years, people intermarry. Um, they, they like their lifestyle where they are and they stay. Um, but then people start. some people start drifting back up to the northern hemispheres. When you first saw that, how did you feel? Um, not as horrific as the Manhattan quake, which was a very acute shock. Um, but it was, um, again, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but it, it seemed pretty definite. It seemed like this was something that was going to happen. You said it's dramatic and unexpected. You know, when you talk about exodus, that's huge. It's huge. Yes, it is. And we're not that far away. We're in 2011 that doesn't leave us many years, 19 years, right? Well, I feel it's going to happen before that. Really? I just have that gut feeling, yeah. Wow. That's a huge, huge thing. Do you think that there's anything that can be done to stop it? Well, there's always the free will. <laughs> um, but then, you know, if something's going to happen that's natural, for example, um, you know, on a par of the Icelandic uh, volcanoes. Yes then there's not much people can do. Um, Just be aware, be flexible, be aware of your environment, um, adapt to what the, what the environment's doing. If you don't like where you are and the, and the atmosphere changes, then it's going to be a natural move for people to go to an area where they can breathe. And it's not the end of the world. You talk about people moving to equatorial countries. I saw them moving to places like um, the Mediterranean islands and the Mallorca, Corfu, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, around that area, that would seem to be like the two of the main places. But of course, those islands aren't going to hold everybody. No, from the northern hemispheres, so there'll be some distribution around those areas. You said one of the biggest concerns would be food. Well, yeah, because you know, um, imagine the trek, because there will be some transportation, but that's going to be a long trek a long journey to get down there um people are going to die um but people will there people will survive and um people will have to adapt there will have to be new lifestyles people living in groups rather than independently as isolated nuclear you know small families when i invited lynn buchanan on as our guest i asked him what did he sense and see by 2020 He said that 
he saw us returning to an agrarian society. It's pretty stunning because those that are walking around with iPads and iPhones and everything is electronic and life revolves around your cell phone, once you're hooked into that, you cannot imagine all that going away. Particularly mm-hmm. young people. That's all they've known. You know, they've grown up with cell phones and iPad, iPods and um, iPads now, and uh, that's their life. So they're, they're in the electronic age. Do you remember Melvin Pruitt? The name rings a bell, but I don't, I'm not quite sure. He's a physicist that got a patent on an air scrubbing technology. Oh, right. That gets rid right. of smog, like a 600-foot cylindrical technology that scrubs the smog. Right. That was the feedback I received after eight years. Um, I had done a, a viewing way back in uh, 19, 1988, 89, um, and what I was tasked with was um, what technology can be discovered or invented that can clear ozone from the, you know, from the atmosphere, from our immediate atmosphere. And um, I saw these um, large chimney-type devices that scrubbed the air, scrubbed, scrubbed all the dirty ozone out and then lofted it up to where it was needed. And... um, put it aside because I didn't see anything happening, just kept it in my files until um, eight years later I was on a plane and I opened up an airline magazine and there was this article about Pruitt <laughs> uh, scrubbing towers. How interesting. And it was like, aha, <laughs> there's my feedback. Let's talk about the rings of Saturn. That was very, very interesting. It would seem ordinarily to be a way out there type of task but I want you to talk about your remote viewing work on the rings of Saturn. How did it start? What were you looking for? What happened? Well, again, this was a tasking from the group in California, and um, they had read Berglund's book, I believe it was called The The Ringmakers of Saturn. Right. And I didn't know. I'd never read the book. I didn't know that was what they were looking at at that particular time. But they asked me to look at the rings of Saturn with a few specific questions. And um, I did the project using extended remote viewing, the spontaneous remote viewing. And um, what I saw were um, a lot of anomalies in the rings. Um, they asked me, you know, the nature of the rings and the... Um, I, I've written in the book about the specifics. And I didn't get feedback on that until a few, about two years ago when uh, the Cassini probe, which had been sent out from Earth, finally reached the rings of Saturn and was sending back information. And I read an article about the, uh, the rings and what the Cassini probe had uh, found. And again, I got some confirmation of some of the perceptions that I had about the rings, which were unknown at that time. Your book was written how long ago? It was, I think, 98. I've got a copy here. Yeah, it's actually now out of print, but I do have copies, and you can get copies on Amazon. Yeah, it was 98. 1998. It's sort of a bit out of date now, and um, I'd love to rewrite it. I think that would be a, a neat project. But I still think that to put what you saw in your remote viewing sessions really bold 
right? And very courageous because your reputation's on a line when you put it in print. Right, right. Well, my, you know, um, the fact that some of the, well, quite a bit of what I'd perceived has now been validated. So um, I don't feel it's such a risk now. Um, but I don't know if I told you how the book came about. No, share I, with us. I was working at the Pear Lab at Princeton University, the um, Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, and I was in one of the bookstores in town, and I was looking for a book that had was a little bit autobiographical, a little bit about remote viewing, about size stuff, a few predictions, some exercises to do remote viewing and altered state work, and I couldn't find anything. And um, I was looking through the shelves and going, well, where are these books? And I'm thinking, oh, I have to write it. Hmm. (laughs) I had that epiphany of I have to write this book because I couldn't find the book that I wanted with all of this information in. And I thought, well, if I want this information, I'm sure there are others out there that would like to read this too. Remember the exercise that we did where you hold an object and tell the story of the object? It's history out of the blue, seemingly. Right. It's called psychometry, and it's a well-known skill. Uh, Some people are better at it than others, but most people can do it. They can hold an unknown object, and it feels like you're perhaps making it up, but there's information that comes through from that object. It's almost like a trigger for information. I think that was pretty interesting. Very, very interesting to be able to do. Everybody was able to do it in our course. One of the things I really appreciated having been your student was coming into the class from the view that we can do this. It was integral in being able to set the tone for the five days. It wasn't just something you said. It's where you come from. You can do this. This is totally accessible to you, where I know there are trainers out there that are transmitting the protocol, but they come from, most of you won't be able to do it, and it'll take years for you to be able to do anything. Mm -hmm. And I think the paradigm of the teacher and the consciousness of the teacher, what they're imparting, not only in the formal transmission of the protocol, but in the meta message is very important. Right. I, I try and stay very positive. I feel that I'm a catalyst for people learning. I try and make my classes very accepting and comfortable um, because that's how people learn. They come in and um, because a lot of people come to the class going, gosh, you know, fear of failure and also fear of success. If I I get it right the first time, am I going to be expected to get it right all the time? So I try and dispel some of those expectations from the beginning and say, you can do this. I'm not going to expect you to be on all the time, but you will get some, you will get data. It is a really different experience to tune in to what you refer to as the signal line, the line by which you are able to feel, sense, talk about, pick up whatever it is that's being tasked is not necessarily what we think it is. I think the greatest challenge of this from the student perspective is to not impose on what's coming in. A lot of times what appeared to me to be coming in didn't make sense to me, but just because it didn't make sense to me didn't mean it was wrong. See, that's the whole thing. It's getting out of the way of our opinions about what's coming in. 
Right. You've got to get out of that left brain, I know what this is, uh, attitude, and just let that information come up from the subconscious, write it down, say it, draw, sketch, model, whatever comes up. Um, because your subconscious knows what the information is. And you have to get that left brain ego out of the way. And that's partly why the protocol, the CRV protocol was designed, because it occupies the left brain with writing and saying. So it keeps it busy. And you have to declare every time your left brain goes, oh, oh, I know what it is. You know, it gives you a big picture of something. Then you have to write it down, declare it and then move on. The left brain is definitely addicted to figuring it out and naming whatever it thinks it is. Yeah, and of course that's very simplistic, left-right. We're always using left-right together. Um, But um, in simplistic terms, the left brain does get in the way very often um, in intuitive work. Describe what you consider to be the subconscious and how it works and why the subconscious is the ground by which the remote viewing protocol is able to happen. Well, the subconscious is a metaphor. (laughs) You know, there's no real hard and fast. You can't go and say, okay, look at the brain, look at the mind. This is, this is where the subconscious is. Um, (laughs) it's, you know, it's not something you can dissect out. Um, it's like looking for memory. Where's memory? You know, um, or, and it has the same thing about what's love, what's hate. You know, it's, it's a metaphor, but it's part of our consciousness that is able to be non-local. Um, it's not always resident in our head, or in our body. It can travel. Um, it can access information. It can be within us and access information. It stores information. It um, doesn't analyze. It, it just shoots up the information into consciousness. And there's um, deductions that... Uh, we have we perceive a huge, vast amount of information, and only a small bit of it, small part of it, makes it up into our conscious mind. So we're accessing our environment all the time into our subconscious mind, and then bits and pieces trickle up into our consciousness. So what the protocol does, what remote viewing does, it, it facilitates accessing information from our subconscious. One of the greatest ahas experientially in being in your class was the experience of the profound nature of non-locality. I mean, you and I can talk about non-locality, but if I hadn't taken your course, only you will have experienced access to it that you can talk about and recall readily, right? But I wouldn't have been able to know what that meant non-locality. I want to talk about that because there was somebody, I don't know if it was Ingo Swan, felt that it will be the greatest discovery in science that ever was. The concept and the reality of non-locality. Talk about that. That sounds like Ingo or maybe Russell Targ, uh, that um, we are not just flesh and blood, physical lumps of meat. You know, we have a spiritual aspect. We have a mental aspect to us. Um, mind that um, although the the purists, the behaviorists say that it's not non-local, it's just the workings of the mind, the electrical workings of the brain. Um, I've had out-of-body experiences since I was a child. 
and um, I write about that in Remote Perceptions. And I proved to myself through self-discovery and experimentation that I could, in my teens, go to a location, perceive what was there, come back, and then go check my perceptions with other people, that I actually could perceive what was at a different location. Um, the, the mind can be non-local. Um, there are certain theories about um, monism and dualism. Monism is the theory that mind and body are one and it, uh, the mind doesn't go anywhere. Um, it's just the workings of the brain. The dualism is that the mind and body can be separate, perhaps are separate most of the time, and can travel and access information at different locations. And perhaps both are right. You know, I can be in a monist state when I'm sitting focused very intently on a task. Mind and body are working together very closely. Or I can be non-local in a dualist state when I can be out accessing information for a project. It sounds so otherworldly, and if I hadn't been to your class and done the level of groundwork I've done on it, just coming to the class was life-altering. But I would say the average person, unless they've had an out-of-body experience, wouldn't know how to receive that information on non-locality because it doesn't really fit within our notions of who we are, that we are bigger than the sum total of our body and our brain. Yeah, it doesn't fit with the accepted scientific paradigm, which is still the behaviorist paradigm. If it can't be measured, um, it's not real. And it's difficult to measure the mind, what the mind can do. That's where remote viewing has really contributed because when somebody does a remote viewing project and they find the missing person or they go out and find a location, um, find the missing car, um, then that's measurable. So you can be measuring consciousness. Can you share a little bit about this whole thing about writing down a coordinate, asking a question, and then doing those squiggles like an ideogram? Can you share a little bit about that? Right. Um, this was developed by Ingo Swan, and um, it was an effort to put what he did naturally into a format that could be trained to other people, that other people could be trained in. And he developed a six-stage protocol, which is very sequential. You start off with a pile of uh, sheet of sheets of white paper and a black pen, and you go through a very sequential protocol, writing things down, saying them. You start off with some databasing, you know, your name, location, date, and time. And the coordinate is... Um, a random series of letters and numbers that are like the address of a particular location or a um, picture in an envelope or a humanitarian location um, that embodies certain questions about that. What is this location? Where can we find these people? That's written down and just given this serial number or address or case number, you could think of it as. And that, that series of letters and numbers is called a coordinate. It's not so much, it started off as actual geographic coordinates, but that was changed to just the random series of letters and numbers. With, there's a whole story behind that. Um, and then once you've written that down, you allow your subconscious to do a little squiggly drawing, a little squiggly as we were calling it in class. Yeah. 
which is called an ideogram, which is a little shorthand uh, drawing that embodies the information, the first information about the target site. And then you, then there's a certain protocol to go through to look at that ideogram and say, does it have angles? Does it have curves? Does it have flat lines? What does it do? What, how does it move? How does it feel? And from there, you can get your first stab at what this might be. Is this a biological? Is this land? Is this water? Is this airy? Is this a man-made? And just within that first five minutes, you can get your first stab at what this, what the um, the object or event or person or location is. It's really profound. It's definitely part of your business for applications, right? You use this in applications. I do. In fact, um, I used it. I used just the ideogram part in a research project two years ago, looking at um, healthy and sick uh, plants. There was a, a researcher who wanted to find a quick way for remote viewers to go in and take a look at a series of plants, um, which were all designated a coordinate, um, and then to write that coordinate down and from doing the ideogram, decide whether this was a sick or healthy plant. And in that series of uh, research, there was one series where I actually got 8 out of 10 and another one where I got 10 out of 10 just using the ideogram method. Wow. It surprised me. <laughs> Let's talk about the different humanitarian as well as business applications and life applications that people could call upon you if they're not taking your training, they could task you with. Talk about that. I think it's really important. Right. I'm, I'm an independent co contractor and I have uh, clients across the world. And uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. We do some humanitarian work. So there's a, um, during the Haitian earthquake, um, the Hotel Montana was just uh, destroyed. And uh, there was a humanitarian aid worker and another local guy that was with him, and they were looking for the bodies. Well, using a, a combination of um, the CRV, controlled remote viewing, and spontaneous remote viewing, um, a group of us were able to pinpoint an area where we felt and we were able to describe an area and the, and the two men who had sadly passed away. Um, and eventually they were able to get in there and retrieve the bodies. And when they gave us feedback, we were within that same area that, um, where the bodies were found. I mean, on one hand, you're doing this great service, but isn't it eerie and icky to be dealing with dead bodies when you're doing remote viewing? Absolutely. And if you go into this work, you have to be prepared. You know, you're going to find dead bodies if that's what the tasking is. And uh, don't go into the work if you're squeamish, you don't like blood or bloated bodies, you know, because you're going to come across them um, that, in that kind of work. Um, then there's the business applications. For example, um, I have one client that I'm doing some stocks and shares uh, evaluations, um, again, using the ideogram method, and also another group that are giving me um, comparisons of currencies. They want to know what a certain currency is going to do against another currency, six months, a year, five years, and again, using the uh, ideogram method. Um, they've been quite happy with uh, what I've given them. 
Have you ever in the last six months with the Casey Anthony case done a private remote viewing on whether she did it or not? Not a formal one, uh, just my own gut feelings. And again, you know, I feel she had a, a strong involvement there, as did the parents. Um, I feel there was a lot covered up. Uh, the fact that they didn't prove that she murdered the child, you know, that was just half the story. I feel that there was a lot more that we will never know. I guess if you really wanted to know it, you could go into controlled remote viewing, but there's so many hours in a day, it's not productive to do it. But No, I've got a life. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, have done, I have done that kind of work, uh, finding a, a body for uh, a colleague whose friend had gone missing and uh, was able to do work located where the body was and, and uh, so th- to the point where he was able to call the coroner's office when the body was um, pulled out of the water and say, that's my friend, <laughs> you know, um, from the information that the viewer, remote viewers gave him. So it can be done, but, you know, I can't remote view every single case in the world. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have a life. I'm sure there's some cases, though, that you want to know, even though you don't talk about it. There's going to be some that you just... Oh, I know on a gut level, yeah. But again, you know... Who you can share it with your friends. Um, I can't be out there making all of these predictions, and you know, I know there are some folks who, whatever they perceive, it, it goes out in a blog. Or I don't do that. It's only when somebody tasks me that I go into a, a more in-depth remote viewing. Have you done any type of remote viewing at any serious tornadoes or earth events in the next year or two, besides the ones you've already written about? I really haven't. Okay. Um, I did take a look for a client at 2012 because that was of concern um, and um, didn't see anything. My um, earth ending, let's put it that way, um, December 2012. More of the same of what we've already been experiencing, perhaps becoming a little bit more severe, but not earth ending. Yeah, that's very similar to actually what the Psychic Twins saw and Lynn Buchanan as well. What are your greatest challenges, given that you're so far along in your craft, your ability, and also as a teacher? The fact that very few people out in the community know what remote viewing is. Um, There has not been a uh, this is why I value programs such as yours. Thank you. That are educating people about remote viewing. Um, whenever you see something on remote viewing in on national television or radio, you know, the conventional programs, is usually ridiculing it, bringing in a skeptic and um, pointing out that this is all rubbish. <laughs> um, so partly that's, and I don't listen to the skeptics. I just move on and I do my own thing. So public education is a big block. Um, when people hear about remote viewing, they think it has something to do with satellites or recreational vehicles. What about people being afraid that if this becomes too prevalent, there'll be no privacy? <laughs> That's a theory, but I really haven't come up against that in any tangible way. How about the fact that everything is accessible concerning people? That's only a problem for people who have secrets that they don't want shared. 
But again, there's an ethics in remote viewing. Um, I can be doing a remote viewing and pick up something about a person or a group that they wouldn't want shared. And that's okay that I don't share it. It's not the ability to access the information. It's what you do with it. I like that you say that. Yeah, you have to act responsibly and ethically. There are some remote viewers who have done non-local access of information outside of Earth, like what you've done with the rings of Saturn. And I think the profound thing is that it doesn't really matter where you're viewing. It doesn't have to be here. It doesn't have to have the same geography as here. Can you explain a little more about that? Because that can seem so way out that it would be unreal for a lot of people to imagine. But why doesn't it matter where you're looking? Um, in the remote viewing field, esoteric types of targets like off-planet and alternative universes, etc., are really have been taboo, um, mainly because they are um, controversial and uh, not accepted by science. You know, some of the, the orthodox remote viewers have wanted to keep things very clean, very straight, you know, just past and present, just not even future. Um, so people like myself are perhaps a little braver and um, are able to go off planet and view um, things outside of this earth. It's all part of our environment. We are part of the universe. We're part of the constellations. We are, you know, we're not this tiny little isolated marble. We are part of a much huger, bigger picture. And um, so why not go and take a look at our neighbors? That's my attitude. Have you ever gone to the moon? Uh-huh. Well, can you talk about it? <laughs> sure. In fact, um, it was we did this during a class back in, uh, it was 94, and um, as a fun project uh, doing ERV, the Extended Remote Viewing Altered State, um, we the tasking was go to the moon, go to the back of the moon, see what's there. And what we perceived were some really odd, unusual um, structures, vegetation, um, odd, odd things that, you know, if you look at it from a distance, you don't see much. But when you actually get down on the surface, this is what the viewers were coming back with. It was a front-loaded project. It wasn't blind. But then years later, I saw what um, Ingo Swan had perceived about the moon and what we had perceived was very similar. So, and I still have all those sketches. I've been to Europa, been to a lot of other planets, of course, the rings of Saturn. And what's interesting is it's very rare that you can ever find photos of the back of the moon. Why? Uh, why? That's my question. Why? That's so, a great question. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like an answer. What's your sense? I feel that there's more there than... Um, we have been told. Because at one time, Clementine, which was a, a, a lunar probe, circled the moon many, many, many times, taking pictures of the whole moon. And at one time, you could actually buy globes of the moon with the whole back and front um, illustrated. But you can't find those now. And of course, you know, John Lear 
has NASA photos from way back of the surface of the moon, which now when you get those same photos, they don't show the anomalies that uh, he found. Do you think that there's some things that we're not supposed to know from the moon perspective or from potential inhabitants of the moon perspective? Do you think that we have bases on the moon? Whatever you can talk about, I'd be interested. I feel that there is more. I don't know exactly. Um, I really haven't done an in-depth study of what might be on the moon. That might be a future viewing. Um, But there is definitely more on the moon than we have we are, we know as a as the public, um, there've definitely been um, cover-ups, as John Lear has shown, of anomalies on the moon that um, are not that have been covered up, that have been airbrushed out of photos. Um, who doesn't want us to know what's on the moon? I don't think it's anything anybody off planet. It could be that the moon is being mined. Who knows? It could be that we're there already. Why haven't we gone back to the moon in many, many years? Why haven't there been any landings on the moon? Why has space program been halted? You know, um, there's a lot happening that I really don't know any answers for. Do you think that all remote viewers at your level are monitored? I think so. I think at some level, yeah. Um, you know, um, viewers like myself have a skill that we can put to practical use. I try and stay within certain guidelines. Um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about a colleague of mine, Prudence Calabrese, and um, I think was a little bit imprudent at times. Um, she would take classes and uh, task the class with, what is the government's next big secret? Uh-oh. And got herself <laughs> into trouble. And eventually she dropped out of the field. And I know from colleagues' comments that she was definitely under scrutiny and eventually dropped out. So I try and be as discreet as I can, and uh, I work with lots of different groups, and I try and stay within certain boundaries. When do you think you will have another training in the United States? Do you think it'll be after, or might you do one before you go to Australia? There's a possibility of doing one in September here in Boulder City, but that would depend on student availability. Um, I don't have set classes, organized classes. Um, I train people that approach me and say, hey, there's a couple of us or a group of us that would like to come out and train with you, um, or would you like to come out and train us in our location? So I'm always open to that. October is kind of busy, uh, but um, from then on, and particularly in the new year, uh, I'm open to giving uh, training courses. I'm very excited to have you back on the show. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Just that I'm very happy to be here, and I thank you very much for promoting remote viewing and giving an understanding to the public about what this is. Well, it's my pleasure. I think it's one of the most fascinating discoveries ever. It's a portal to everything. And so I thank you so much for being our guest, for coming back, for taking your time, for the remote viewing work that you're doing and the training that you're doing. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to remote viewer Angela Smith. If you would like to get a hold of her, you can go to mindwiseconsulting.com. 
Remember, there's two classes back-to-back in Australia in mid-October. If you take her class, you can pick up her book, Remote Perceptions, Out-of-Body Experiences, Remote Viewing, and Other Normal Abilities. Thanks for being here, Angela. Thank you, Kim.